Martin Wolf, it is wonderful to have you with me for my podcast. I've interviewed you before in different settings, but it's a privilege to have you for 20 questions with. You are the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times. You are a multi-award winning journalist. You have done lots else with your life as well, including having worked for the World Bank. And in the course of these 20 questions, I want to get a little bit of a sense of you and also a very basic grasp of how you see the world through the lens of an economist. First question, why does economics matter? Well, the answer for that is fairly straightforward. We all depend on earning a living. Uh, That's basically what life is there to do before anything else. And economics is the art of understanding how we earn livings, what systems underpin this, how it works uh, over the um, centuries, but particularly in the modern world. So I would say it is the single most important subject for understanding how the system that feeds us, that supports us, actually functions. How does an economist stay in touch with precisely that, with what is going on, as it were, on the ground, with the people who are building the businesses, running the businesses, helping to turn the cogs of the economy? Well, the answers to that, there are many answers. But first, economists have to focus on different things because there's lots of aspects of the economy and the economists can't study all of them. Uh, Economists differ from straightforward journalists. We're trying to fit what's going on into analytical frameworks, into models, I suppose, of the world, which we can generalize. Uh, and in different ways. So it is at least an attempt at being scientific about all these things. So there's this theoretical structure is very important. And in terms of getting evidence, there are many different ways, but mostly economists rely on data, uh, particularly nowadays. And data come from measurements of transactions of all sorts and kinds in the economy, measures of wealth, Uh, measures of behavior, uh, some of it generated directly by the private sector, some generated by official institutions. Economies live and breathe data. How did you come to be an economist? I was at Oxford uh, a very long time ago, and I realized, uh, I already knew this to some extent, that I was really interested in politics and public life. And I decided, and this is in the 60s, believe it or not, uh, that in order to understand what was going on in the world as it was then, and I think ever since, I really needed to have some understanding of economics. So I, after completing the first part of the course I was on, which was classics, I uh, asked whether I could switch to politics, philosophy and economics and to find out what it was like. And I was particularly interested in economics, and I wanted to find out whether I could get it, and I sort of did get it, and I enjoyed it very much, even though I didn't have a mathematical training. And I pursued it as a graduate, and then I joined the World Bank, and so I became an economist. Your father, Edmund Wolf, I knew him as Mundi, was best friends with my grandfather, Peter Stadlin, or Peter Stadlin, as his name would have been pronounced in Austria, where they were both from. I'm curious to know how your background as the son of two people who managed to survive the horrors of the 1930s and 1940s, how your background has influenced and shaped you professionally, but also personally. Oh, well, that is going to be difficult to answer in, in a one minute. There are two relevant answers. There are many, but two. First of all, when 
I was answering about why I cared about public policy and so forth. One of the specific views I had, I discussed this in the preface of my latest book, is that one of the things that led to the catastrophe of interwar Europe and the rise of Hitler was the Great Depression, which was an economic disaster. Also, the hyperinflation of the 20s. So it seemed to me pretty obvious, because of my background, that really big economic screw-ups had enormous political consequences. So that's one way in which my background played a big part. And the second part is that I've always been aware that political and economic systems, and particularly their stability, is very fragile. Uh, that there are always the possibility of civilizational breakdown with unbelievably catastrophic results. And that influenced my concerns in what I write about, my worries about be really big mistakes, and my, I suppose in the end, my rather passionate engagement with what's going on in the world. Is it fair to say that you were part of or an advocate for a sort of Keynesian resurgence in about 2008-9? And if it is true, is Keynes as close as, as it gets to you having a, a sort of hero in the world of economics? I'm not very good at heroes, but I would say that Keynes had several qualities I admire enormously. First, he was a wonderful writer and a communicator. He, he sold his ideas. He was the greatest economic journalist, without a doubt, of the 20th century, wrote freely for newspapers. Second, he had a, a wonderful, clear mind, who, which made it possible for him to understand the essence of the theoretical structures he was trying to develop in relationship to the concerns he had. So it wasn't abstract. It was practical, real, and uh, relevant. And I admire that enormously. And finally, uh, in pretty well everything he wrote, and most famously in the writings of the 30s, he was passionately morally engaged. I mean, really passionately morally engaged in trying to get uh, the British government and the American government to do what he thought would be the right thing to to for, forestall and prevent uh, the disaster that he saw in the Great Depression. So how relevant is he today? And for those who don't have a, a basic grasp of Keynesian economics, just sum it up for us. Well, he's clearly been very relevant, though, in a different way now from the way in the 30s, in the simple sense that our policy continues to be dominated by the idea of stabilizing the economy, that we need to take actions that will stabilize economic activity, avoid huge booms and busts, and concentrate in fiscal and monetary policy on that objective. And you saw that most clearly, what you call the Keynesian resurgence, uh, during and after the 2007 to nine financial crisis, when everyone went back and said, my God, this is like the Great Depression. We can't make those mistakes again. We're going to do what they should have done, which is basically what Keynes they should have said they should have done, which is spend freely, uh, fiscally and use monetary policy as well. And uh, that was successful. So I would say the technical details of how we do things, for better or worse, are different. Uh, but the objectives of short-run stabilization as a primary goal of policy, which Keynes introduced in the 30s, remain overwhelmingly important. Are you reassured that we, and by we, I suppose the world in its loosest sense, 
that we have learned the lessons from the financial crisis that you just mentioned? No, I think the my answer to that is not really. Uh, we have learned that it can happen, which is very important. So we act more quickly now, I think. We have learned that we need to watch very carefully how the financial system operates. Uh, but uh, we, I think, are still too complacent about the financial system uh, and its stability. That I think it's been shown in recent period with the, the banking turmoil we've had in uh, the last month or two, um, basically last month. And the uh, and I think there is a real danger that things like this will happen again. And of course, beyond that, we have to recognize there are many other sources of instability in our economies. Uh, and we've, we've had plenty of examples of that pandemic, war, energy shocks, and so forth. And uh, I think we are going to have to think more rigorously and carefully about how to minimize or at least contain those instabilities and manage the consequences. As an economist, Martin, do you find yourself sometimes being frustrated that perhaps politics might dominate economics? In other words, that politicians are acting politically ahead of with their economics hats on? Well, my own view, I'm not really frustrated, at least not most of the time, because I think in a way that's right and proper. Uh, we need, of course, we need an economic system. Most of the time, we hope it will operate reasonably automatically that will work for people. And it's the job of politicians with their advisors to ensure that the policy framework, policy regime is one that works in that sense. But I also have to accept there are no fully technocratic solutions to any human social problem. They always involve values and judgments about values uh, that has to be accepted. It's what politics is there to do. Uh, we probably will always disagree with most of what our politicians do, but we can't get rid of them because we're social animals and we have societies which have to be run. I want democracy, so I don't want to be ruled by a dictator. I would rather be ruled by a, a democratic system. And so I have to accept that democratic politicians will often be confused, confusing, get it wrong, and it's their right. And it's my job to point out when they do get it wrong and hope that it influences them. Do you feel pressure as the Financial Times chief economics commentator? Uh, not really. Uh, I feel pressure to do my job as well as I can. I don't try not to think of it in terms of I've got this sort of uh, apparently influential position in society and I must live up to that. Uh, I know by now, I've done this for, believe it or not, 27 years. Uh, uh, I know by now what that involves as an operational, as a job. And I perform the job uh, uh, in the best way I can, as it were, on a day-to-day -day basis without thinking of its wider significance. I'm sure, I'm not making the comparison in any other way, but I'm sure that if you're a first-rate concert pianist and you're sitting on the... Uh, are, are on the stool playing, you're not thinking about, well, my God, what a catastrophe it would be if I just couldn't remember the next note. And as a result, I will be humiliated. But worse, the orchestra, the conductor, the organizers and the Royal Festival Hall will be humiliated. You can't think about any of that. You just focus on the next notes. Well, that's what I do as a columnist. Do you find yourself 
looking at the world consciously through a British lens? Do you see economics through being a Brit or do you try to step outside of that and look at the world more globally? I think in my case, I I try to think of it uh, uh, and look at the world as best I can as a human, so globally. I, I uh, But I also think of it in terms of the readers I'm addressing in any particular piece. Uh, so I know very well when I write about some topics, they will be of greater global interest. Uh, and on our others, it's just really about the British economy. So if I'm writing on the former, say climate, yes, of course, I know there are lots of people in Britain who are interested in climate, but an intelligent analysis of a truly global problem like um, climate is a global analysis. It has to be because it can't be, it has global effects and uh, can only be solved globally. But if I write about British fiscal policy or the Liz Trust disaster, it's obvious that there's interest in uh, in people in the rest of the world, but it doesn't affect them directly, except perhaps as a warning. And so I'm, it's clear that this uh, this analysis is of greater relevance to uh, to the British. And that one has to be aware always in what I write. I try to be aware of who who other people are likely to be interested in this. Are you able to tell us whether Brexit has so far been economically damaging to the United Kingdom? I think the evidence we have so far on trade performance and growth, uh, investment, uh, um, are together reasonably convincing that it's been damaging. It's, it's important to stress that, and is indeed one of the great problems with economics, we we only can have one world at a time. So the world that would have existed if we had not chosen Brexit will never exist. And we don't know what it would have consisted of. So as economists like to say, it's a point I make often, the counterfactuals, the, the things that would have happened if we hadn't done what we did will never be known. This is true for individuals in their lives, if I hadn't married A, I wouldn't, I, who would I married? And what are difference would my life be? You don't know. So the same applies in this case. We, we divorced ourselves from the EU. We will never know what would have happened if we'd stayed. So these are inferences from evidence, not direct knowledge of what actually would have happened, which we will never know. But I'm reasonably persuaded, but to be fair, I would, it's what I would expect anyway, from both the theory and even more the evidence that it has already done not insignificant damage. How big it is, that we can debate. I, I mentioned politics and economics earlier, and I, I wonder as a writer whether you find yourself able to strip out the politics from your writing about economics and also to, to write dispassionately. In other words, if you made a prediction or if you wrote a piece in the past that you felt has turned out differently to how you expected, are you able then to write in a new column without trying to force the past to be correct, without, without somehow trying to save face? I'm not saying you do get things wrong, although we're all human beings and we, all get, we do tend to get things wrong some of the time. Do you see what I'm trying to get to in a very inarticulate way? In other words, are you able to look at the economics and really report on it and analyse it as you see it, rather than being in any way clouded or tempted by things you might have said before, or indeed by your political worldview. So there are separate elements in that. Every uh, 
judgment one makes now is informed by what one's learned in the past. So you can't escape the past. Uh, we are not born. We are not born every minute as a tabula rasa. So obviously, anything I write is profoundly influenced by everything I have thought and learnt and unlearned in my lifetime. That's clear. So uh, second. I do try, so far as I can, to confront questions as if I'm confronting these specific questions for the first time. Uh, so I very recently wrote a column on what I thought would happen to real interest rates after this huge shock we've we've had. Will they be higher than they were before COVID or will they go back to the very low levels we said they would then? I'm obviously um, influenced by what's happened and how I interpret what happened before COVID. But I hope I've sort of analyzed where we are now, at least from my point of view, in a reasonably fresh and dispassionate way. Finally, I would say uh, I have been well aware of mistakes I've made. I have changed my mind on things. I have changed my mind on things because what I thought turned out to be wrong, or it, what I believed in created that dangers that I didn't fully recognize. And that is partly because some of what I used to think was economically wrong, and some of it but turned out to be politically wrong. And finally, uh, politics is a, a twin of economics, as far as I'm concerned, because they are two aspects conjoined in core aspects of the way complex human societies, our human societies run. So everything is always political. There is no such thing as economics that is divorced completely from the political because that would make it unhuman. Has China developed economically in the way that you expected it to? And how big a threat to the economic powerhouse that is America is China? Well, the, the answer to the first question is has depends when you say, has China developed as I expected to do? I think the answer to that would depend on when. So if I were asked, I remember debating this actually with my father in the 70s, when Mao and the Cultural Revolution was going on, you know, how likely is it that China, as it was in 1975, would end up as where it is in 2023, I think I would have said, what? I'm, no, I mean, you're talking about a complete revolution. Uh, how could that possibly happen in Maoist China? So more interesting is more recent period. I think the there have probably been two surprises, big, big surprises. First, after Tiananmen, I think a lot of people thought the reform process of the economic economy uh, was dead. Um, I didn't share that view, but the extent to which in the succeeding 10 years reform will be pursued and the range and comprehensiveness of those reforms was astonishing. Given that, it was pretty obvious by the late 90s, this place was going to grow like crazy. Uh, so from, say, 90 six, seven, eight onwards, the, the speed of growth was not surprising. That's the post Tiananmen surprise. And then the second surprise has been how far the current government, and this has been obvious, I think, since 2012, have been prepared to go back 
in the way they run the political system and to significant degree the economy and that is slowing it rapidly and that's what i've been expecting now for quite a long time so since the middle of the 1990s i feel that my guesses about the chinese development have been reasonably consistent with developments and what i thought would go right and, and what would go wrong have not have been reasonably consistent and then you are with the evidence then you ask well what does this mean for the us for the west more broadly because the us is the core i think that now the future of the of china is i feel more uncertain economically and polit but above all economically than I felt at any time in the last 25 years. I don't know how well they're going to be able to maintain growth, but I think there's a pretty reasonable chance, pretty reasonable chance, say 40% or so, maybe even 50%, that China will be far and away the largest economy in the world within the next 20 or 30 years. And I mean far and away. Is that certain? Very far from it, but it's a reasonable chance. The population difference is despite the aging mean that China, if it achieves its potential, is going to be an absolutely colossal economy. And what do you think that means for America if that were to eventuate? Well, the United States, I think, faces with the question is whether it's prepared to go to war to prevent that happening. And I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, the, uh, but I do think, from the way I look at America now, that the Americans will find it very, very difficult to adapt to that situation. Uh, there's clearly a strong mood in in America, though not you know, more extreme versions are not dominant, but, but there's the extreme suspicion of China, extreme hostility and fear about the rise of China and the desire, if possible, to stop it. How far America will be willing to go and how likely, in particular, that that will lead to a complete economic breakdown in relations between them or even war, it's difficult to judge now. But um, this looks now like a very fragile and unstable relationship. How much bigger an economic force than it already is do you anticipate India becoming in the next 20, 30, 40 years? That's a more difficult question. I think my conservative estimate is given the demography of India, if it maintains political stability, it should be able to grow at somewhere between 4 and 6% a year over the next 20 years. This depends on global stability and lots of other things. This is not comparable to the growth rate of China. So the rise of India would not be comparable to this staggering, uh, unique up rise that we've seen with China. But... I expect that if these figures are right, that India will be the third largest economy in the world, as we think of it as a national economy after uh, the U China and the US, and probably could well be con conceivably almost as big as the European Union in 20 years. So it will be a major economic power, though still a relatively poor country, not a high income country yet. So I think India will is also likely to be the fastest growing single large economy in the world over the next 20 years.
when you look at big global financial institutions, I'm thinking of the World Bank, I'm thinking of the International Monetary Fund. Have we got that that right? Have we have we got the global approach to finance right? Or is there scope for doing it much better? And how important is are our international bodies going to be as the world changes, possibly along the lines that you've suggested it might? Well, it, it's always possible to divide to design and imagine uh, much better institutional setups than the ones we have. The ones we have are a product of history. Basically, uh, these were institutions designed immediately during and immediately after the Second World War, a long time ago, getting on for 80 years. And uh, And the world has changed dramatically. Uh, so if we were designing from scratch and could design whatever we want, we would have a different set of arrangements. That's absolutely clear. The way I approach this, however, is since we can't design things from scratch because we're not in the sort of unique moment that the Second World War allowed two countries, basically the US dominant and the UK, to design the world, um, that, that's not something that comes along very often. That doesn't isn't relevant. What you have to ask is, what would we want to do now, given the the really high priority challenges we face? And I think there are, broadly speaking, three things. Very quickly, we we need to find a way to ensure that the Western dominated institutions and the Chinese institutions have been been created partly because they've not given an adequate voice in the Western dominated institutions cooperate closely together. And I believe, however much we dislike it, China needs to be given a bigger voice in the IMF and the World Bank in return for cooperating more closely with the IMF and World Bank on things like developing country debt and all the rest of it. Uh, So that's the first thing. We have to, to accept that the West can't dominate the world. The second big challenge we have, which is obvious, is financial and monetary stability. And on that, uh, we remain, I think, uh, with considerable difficulties, particularly in in the way in which we run the global banking system. We've made a lot of improvements, but uh, we still have a lot of problems. That's not going to be solved by the IMF or the World Bank. It is going to be solved by very close cooperation among major governments, which is going to have to include China again. And finally, crucially, climate finance. Uh, if we're going to tackle climate effectively, we have to have a global climate policy. It's no good just to fix in developed countries, which are in decreasingly important in emissions. And that means we need global financial arrangements that encourage uh, private capital and government capital to, to invest in uh, the transformation of energy systems all across the world, including above all emerging and developing countries. And that again, is a huge challenge. And these huge new challenges are not ones we're meeting, in my view, very well. Are you surprised, and I'm talking to you on the 21st of April 2023, just so we can locate this interview for people who come to it later on, but are you surprised by the scale of the cost of living crisis that we have experienced in this country? And of course, it's not entirely unique to us, but are you surprised by the extent to which people have struggled with the cost of things? Yes. I mean, in a course, uh, the as I've written very recently in a column that appeared last week, or the, earlier this week, the 
we have experienced two shocks simultaneously that three or four years ago seemed very unlikely. Uh, they seemed very unlikely they would come together. First, an and general inflation shock. That is a, a process which led to a general rise in the price level. And the, and it's a big price movement of the general price level, which uh, we haven't really experienced since the early 80s. But that's 40 years ago. And so we haven't experienced anything like that for about 40 years. And that, I think, has been largely the consequence of an interaction of huge demand expansion during the COVID, which was a huge shock, and then unexpected supply constraints after COVID. So we got both of that wrong, but COVID was a huge shock. Then we got a second bout of shock, namely the Ukraine war and the effect on energy and food. And this exacerbated the inflationary supply shock, but it added something else which was particularly bad for countries like ours, and which really made it a cost of living shock. And this is what economists call an adverse shift in the terms of trade. Basically, the prices of our imports rose massively relative to the prices of our exports, and that made our country overall poorer. It's not then just a matter of general price levels rising, but the country became poorer. If you add those two things together with a government that was determined not to raise taxes to ensure that public sector employees and beneficiaries of the welfare and so forth would be actually, were, as it were, made whole out of this inflation in terms of trade shock, it was inevitable that people will become absolutely poorer. And a lot of people will become absolutely poor, and they call it a cost of living crisis, but really and truly, it's a reduction in real incomes. What are the, the lessons, now that we've had a few months to reflect on it, of the failure, the spectacular failure of the Liz Trust government? Well, I think the, the lessons, in a way, were very helpful. There were three, uh, I think. The first is a purely ideological approach to politics. That, and policy that doesn't take into account basic economic and political realities is going to blow up. At least it's going to blow up for the UK. Maybe the US has more wiggle room. And so we have to ex accept and understand the realities of our situation domestically, internationally, in terms of politics and economics. And particularly, and this is the second big one, economics means the, the willingness of people around the world and their agents to purchase British assets, including British government bonds, and keep their therefore keep their prices down, make borrowing affordable. Uh, that, I think, is something they just basically forgot in their rhetoric and in their behavior, and that frightened people and created a huge problem. And the final thing lesson I, I draw from this is more specifically British, is that a sort of romanticised view of Thatcherism and Thatcher, which I think actually had never had much to do with the real Thatcher and the real Thatcher government, that romanticised view, which is very widely shared on the Conservative Party and was part of the Brexit programme, is just a delusion. It, it's not going to solve our problems. Uh, it's based on severe, serious misunderstandings, and we've got to jettison it, and we've got to have sensible, sober policymaking. And the good thing then is, I think that point has got through on both sides. 
Final two questions, and your answers have been admirably brief. But the, yeah, I'm good at that. The penultimate question is this. As a writer, who are you writing for? Obviously for the FT readership, but do you consciously try to make difficult things more easy to understand? Are you aware of your style? Are you aware of trying to write well? Is that a part of it? Because you're an economist, you're a commentator. How much of your preoccupation is with the way that your, that your articles read? Of course, you, you're also an author of multiple books. Well, the, I, I think... It's an it's a dominant concern, uh, and I think actually probably uh, my best quality is clarity, which is not the same as elegance. I'm not particularly concerned about the elegance of my sentences, and I certainly wouldn't consider myself at any day as a great writer. But what I do think is crucial for what I do is of course I have to inject some passion, some sense of why I'm writing about this and why it matters. But I want to give my right have my writing come across as analytical, reasonably dispassionate, based on rigorous argument and evidence, and lucid, so that the the stages in the argument, the reasons that I've reached these conclusions, the the whole structure of the argument is as clear as it possibly can be. And I'm dealing obviously with very complicated issues uh, um, in a thousand words or in some of my columns, 800 words. So that's quite tricky. You have to know what you can get rid of. You have to be very precise in the way you phrase things. But I do think that's basically what I'm best at. And, uh, I feel that if I made it completely clear to myself, there's a reasonable chance that other people will get it. But I do recognize, and it's inevitable, that in some subjects I deal with, there, and that's not true of all by any means, but some, there are technical aspects to it, such that people who have really no background in markets, what money is, how government balance sheets and accounts are organized and don't know any accounting and so forth, they're going to find it pretty, pretty tricky. And it's difficult to avoid that. In the end, my readership is a fairly, my ideal readers are people who are at least reasonably informed about the basic issues I deal with. That doesn't mean professional economists or anything else, but that is my readership and it's the FT's readership and I'm obviously writing for them. Final question and I can't help in listening to you talk and uh, and my awareness of your status as such a senior commentator on the economic affairs not just of Britain of the world but to be grateful that <laughs> grateful anyway of course but maybe very satisfied that you hold the position you do, given that Hitler tried to wipe out your ancestors and my ancestors, and indeed that you, you on your mother's side perhaps particularly lost an enormous number of people to Nazism. So that, anyway, on a personal level, is you know, I, I find it very poignant and, and powerful. My final question is, what's it like being Martin Wolf now? What gives you pleasure outside of work? And just give us a sense of yourself, the man, which is not an easy thing to do, but I want, I'm interested to know how you, would, how you see, see yourself and give us a sense of it. I, I have to say that maybe this is sort of 
um, false humility, but I don't think so. I really don't go around uh, thinking about myself being an important person. I mean, it would be ridiculous. I think of myself, and I've always thought of myself, I have no position of, uh, of power nor sorted. I fell into this by accident. I, I, I didn't ask for it, actually. Well, the editor of the FT offered me a job, and that's how it happened. So I, I never planned to be a commentator. It just how it ended up. I really didn't. So my view is I have the great good fortune to do something I enjoy, which I think I'm reasonably good at, presumably I, otherwise I wouldn't have survived, and which uh, allows me to do something that really is important to me, which is to play a role in the public sphere, which I hope adds clarity, a sense of moral purpose, obviously my moral purposes, the values I care about in life, uh, and and uh, and by, as it were, teaching people, in a sense, as what I'm doing, improves the quality of our public debate. So to come back uh, to our shared ancestry, I suppose I sometimes think of my role as being in economics of, as with many great as many economists, um, as sort of a slightly rabbinical role. You're you're trying to elucidate the law. In this case, it's economics. Now, on a personal level, like uh, most human beings, uh, apart from trying to do my job well, and which I, for the reason I've said, think is important and means a lot to me and gives me a sort of pleasure and justification, the other things that I really care about are one's family, uh, the fact that our family has gone on, uh, that we now have three children and six grandchildren is sort of remarkable, but I've been married for a very long time, uh, that uh, uh, to someone who means everything to me, that uh, this family that we've created in this country has looks well-established and uh, and that I've played some role in the public life of this country and elsewhere. And in my most recent writing, uh, particularly try to do, do something about preserving our democracy. So um, beyond that, I have uh, hobbies and amusements like many other people, which aren't really particularly important. But I do think that what I do is important. I think my father would have thought the same uh, as a writer, journalist, and so forth. Um, not important because I do it, but it's important because having people do what I do as honestly as they can, to think that it's more important to write what they see as the truth than a lie, to avoid being politicized, to actually be reasonably objective and honest as far as one can be. These are really high values and the basis of any advanced civilization. It's been a tremendous honor and pleasure to be part of that. It's been an honor to interview you again, Martin. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. Great pleasure.